You've heard the adage, hindsight is 2020. So I want to talk to you today about foresight being 2020, or at least it could be. Take a look at this first picture. Generally, I'm sure you can recognize what that is. What happens to your understanding when we lay text on top of it? Does it change? You have a clearer sense of what we're looking at. What about the next picture? I'm sure generally you can recognize that when we lay text over it. And the third. How does your understanding change when we add text to it? Does it provide you with clearer insight? Understanding what happened before and what happened after should give you a clearer insight into the present reality that what we're talking about in the moment. This is hard to do. We don't have foresight, right? <laughs> not really, not in our everyday lives. We don't fully understand what's going to come next. And it's hard to keep that in mind when we're looking at our present reality. I want to share a story with you. Most of you have probably heard it, but I want to revisit it, uh, the story of Horatio Spafford. And if you don't know his name, you probably know his story. At least worship leaders may have heard it before. Um, and those of us who love a good hymn have know this story. So Horatio Spafford was a very wealthy gentleman who lived in the late 1800s. And he was married and had five small children. And in the early 1870s, his young two-year-old son contracted scarlet fever and died. That same year, he was very wealthy because he was a lawyer, but he was very wealthy because he had lots of real estate investments and lots of um, financial stability as a result of that. That same year, all of his financial um, investments were wiped out in the great fire of Chicago. So in one year's time, he lost his only son and all of his financial support. Shortly thereafter, he and his wife and their four young daughters decided to go on holiday. And because of work, he went and sent his wife and their four young girls ahead of him. And they boarded a boat to cross the Atlantic. And it was shipwrecked and went down. He received a telegram the next day that said, from his wife, that said, Saved alone, what shall I do? So he got on a boat to go meet her. And as his vessel crossed the same waters where they knew the wreckage was, and he was above the watery graves of his four young girls, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a moving story, but you have to understand, he must have known deep in his soul what came before and what he knew would come. The promises of God would give him a clearer understanding of his present reality. I have a dear friend who spent her entire life longing to be married, decades longing to be married. She went through all kinds of emotions, wondering first confusion, then dismay, then despair, Anger, resentment, finally resolution, and peace. And in her late 50s, she met the man of her dreams, and they were married. And one week after they were married, she received the diagnosis that he had cancer. 
they received the diagnosis that he had cancer. And she has spent the last two years, the only two years of their marriage, in and out of hospitals seeking treatment. And every time they think they get closer, something else happens, and it's a setback. And last week, they were headed into what they thought might be their final treatment, and they found out there was a new blockage. And as we speak, he is in surgery for that, and they're starting it over. I, I wrote her this weekend, and I said, what is your state? How are you? How are you managing? How have you, how are you? And she wrote me back one sentence and said, no matter what, I still love God. She knew who God was based on what he had done and who he had promised to be and was using that to give her clearer insight into her present reality. It's hard. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever faced something where you've thought, you've had dismay, you've had despair, perhaps resentment, anger. I don't know where you are in your journey, but are you asking the question, why? Are you asking God, will you walk through this with me? Will you give me a clearer insight into this present reality? Today's lesson comes from Luke 24, and as it, Luke is really um, good about referencing journeys. And so this story comes to us from a journey as well. They're journeying back after a pilgrimage to Jerusalem where they had celebrated the Passover. This happens after the resurrection. So a lot had happened in those three days. That, um, the women had gone to the tomb, found it empty. The disciples were confused. They doubted. They didn't believe. And everyone's kind of left scratching their head and they're walking back and they're sad. They're going through those same feelings of, wait, this is not what we expected. They have dismay, perhaps despair, perhaps even anger. We thought this was how this was going to be. This was how this was going to go down. And they're confused, and they don't understand what's happening. And Jesus comes up to them and asks them what they're talking about. And they, they stop, and they're like, where have you been? And they, they tell him what has happened. They don't recognize him. And he is kind of like, where have you been, Um, and gives them insight into all of the scriptures and explains it to them from beginning to end, everything that had to do with who he was. It's interesting that the text says, he acted as if he were going farther. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. He gave them space to respond, and their response was, stay Stay with us. We don't know who you are or where you came from, but stay. Stay with us. So he does. And he comes in with them at table, and he assumes the position of host. And he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and it is in that moment that they recognize him. And this understanding of what had happened before and the implications, now that they've seen him, of what will come gives them insight into their present reality. And understanding this grand narrative opens their eyes to the presence of Jesus in their midst. You can see a pattern there of Jesus greeting them, drawing them to him on the road, then giving them his words, right? And then he gives them space to respond, and then they're sent. When he disappears, what do they do? They go running right back. It says it's seven miles so they, ran, they went seven miles to where they were and ran seven miles back 
<laughs> probably within 24 hours. That's a lot. <laughs> they couldn't wait to get back and tell what they had seen, tell what they knew at that point. They had to go and tell. But this same pattern of drawing in, of explaining the word, of giving space for a response, and then being sent out, that same fourfold pattern can be seen repeatedly between how, how God interacts with his people. You can see it throughout Scripture. Think of Moses. We've already been reminded of him. Moses is drawn into God at the burning bush. God gives him a word, tells him what he intends for him to do, gives him space to respond, which Moses needs a lot of because he takes almost two full chapters to say yes, complaining and whining the whole way. But he finally says yes, and then is, when he submits to, be, to God being host of his life, he is sent. It's the same thing for Isaiah. He's drawn in by the seraphim to see heavenly visions of worship. And God speaks to him, gives him his word, and says, Whom shall I send? I have a plan. You want in? Gives him space to respond, which Isaiah doesn't need, practically interrupts him and says, Here am I. Send me. I'm ready. Same verse. And when he submits to God being host of his life, he's sent out. Mary when she's drawn in by the angel of the Lord and given the plan for her life and how she needs to, what the Lord expects of her, she's also given space to respond. And she asks a clarifying question, but then very quickly says, I'm the Lord's servant. Submits to God being host of her life and is sent. This same pattern of gathering us to him, drawing us to him, he gives us his word, his promises, his assurance of relationship his guidance, his wisdom, giving us space to respond and then sending us out is how God repeatedly engages with his people. You can see it as in our stories probably. If somebody asks you to share their story of faith, even if you've taken a zillion evangelism classes and you know all the patterns and you know all the right questions to ask and all of those things, you can just tell them this story in these four points. Tell them how God drew you to him. Tell them how, what his word says and how it's made a difference in your life. Tell them what your response has been and how you've enabled yourself to be broken and accept Christ as the host of your life and how he's using you to reach other people. This same pattern can be seen through all of God's people. He created us at creation to be in relationship with him. He drew us to him. He gave us his covenant word. He gave us space to respond, and when we couldn't do it in our own strength, which we can't, he gave us Christ as salvation, as our redemption. And when we choose him, we are sent out as the church. These same four folds the early church picked up on. We have evidence, we have echoes of it as early as the second century, and we have clear evidence of these four folds from the fourth century that the early church used gathering, gathering together, then reading of the word, then a response, usually through sacrament, and then we're sent out. For the last 2,000 years, this has traveled through church, Christian Trinitarian churches, and you can find echoes of it in all denominations. Even what you'd say is not liturgical. You'd still find echoes of it. In our leaflets, we have a gathering where we gather together as God's word, um, as God's people and as his community, responding to his invitation recognizing we are in his presence. Then we hear from his word. Then we're given a chance to respond, and then we're sent out. You'll see it in a moment at the altar with the Eucharist. The priest takes the bread, draws it in, says a word of blessing over it, 
breaks it and sends it out to the people. We see it repeatedly over and over and over. Where in your life would understanding this grand narrative, this way that God interacts with his people, open your eyes to give you clearer sight? Let's revisit our own journeys. Take a moment, trust me and go with me. Take a moment and close your eyes. Just like at the beginning, think of an image. I'm going to ask the Lord to bring you an image that represents your current journey, your present reality. Now, if God were to lay text over that image, what would he say to you? What words would allow you to see his grand narrative, enabling you to find yourself in the presence of Jesus? You can open your eyes. The second question is, what is your response? You see, we have foresight. We know how the story ends. Luke just read to us Romans 8, which reminds us that we're more than conquerors and that nothing, not hardship, distress, peril, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This, this is the story. God draws us to him. He speaks truth into our lives. We're given space to respond. And when we allow him to be the host of our lives, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus and we're sent. This never-failing extending of grace is the story. And this is what we must fix our eyes on throughout our journey, whatever our present reality is. In a moment, we'll come up to take communion. We'll choose to partake in receiving this grace. Humans are ritualistic people. You can say you're not liturgical, but we are. We all are. I, I pretty much guarantee, at least I hope, that the last thing you did before you left your house was brush your teeth, right? So you choose to do that because you believe it has value. You engage in rituals on a daily basis because they have value and you communicate that value. Think of all the things that we do. Do you wash your car? That communicates what you value. Do you go to graduation ceremonies? The ceremony itself is not the graduation. You're, you're, you'll still graduate if you don't go. A wedding ceremony, you're still married. You can still get married without a ceremony. It's a ritual that says to the world, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is what I value, and this is how I choose to live my life. We are ritualistic people. Humans are across the board. Now, whether or not you can see that in traditional liturgy in your church might be different, but you still engage in liturgy. You still engage in the work of the people in worship, and you still engage in rituals in that liturgy that communicate what you value hopefully intentionally. But this is one of the things that we engage in every week that communicates what we value. We value it as a sacrament instituted by Jesus, but it's not that we do it just because of that. We believe that it's this outward sign of the inward grace that we've been offered. It's a response to God calling us and speaking his words Jesus speaking his words, do this in remembrance of me. Doing this doesn't mean it's legalistic and we're doing this because we have to. It's not that mentality. Jesus is saying, respond, come, be broken for me as I was broken for you. 
the communal act of remembrance that Jesus modeled for his disciples turns out to be a means by which his followers recognize him both then and now. This text draws bigger connections than just the Eucharist. It paints an example of this grand narrative that God feeds his hungry creation through Jesus. He continues to do this today. When you come forward, you'll be asked to kneel at the railing if you're able. And assuming that posture is a physical enactment of your willingness to be broken again and to submit to Christ as your host in your daily reality to respond to Jesus' request. From there, as you stand, recognize that you're being sent out into the world just as the disciples were on that road. Their only response after understanding the bigger picture, after being given foresight into this grand narrative of how God engages with his people and is offering redemption, was to go and tell. You've been given that same gift. Foresight is 2020. When you remember that God wins, God redeems, his light defeats the darkness. So how will you respond? How will you allow what has happened and what you know of God to be true and what will happen and what he's promised to give you clearer insight into your present reality? Will you allow yourself to respond by being broken and submitting to Christ as host of your journey, opening your eyes to see his story, grateful to be part of it, and to go and tell this good news, claiming through it all, with Christ as Lord is my life, it is well with my soul. Please pray with me. God, you are our creator, and we thank you for gathering us, for drawing us in, for offering us your word and your truth, and for giving us space to respond. Open our eyes to see Jesus in our midst to give us clear insight into our present reality so that we may stand strengthened to go and share that story with others. In Christ's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.